Time now for another episode of Pats from the Past, our podcast, Matt Smith, alongside Brian Morey, and pleased to be joined today by former Patriots coach, Charlie Weiss. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, good morning. I feel I feel right at home. I'm sitting here with my Dunkin' Donuts coffee here in South Florida, reminiscing of my days in Foxborough and in New England, and ready to go. Let me ask you a question. Uh, f- for a, a problem on my end, so I'll admit that right off the top, is that I have to work with Scott Zolak frequently. And I think Zoe was telling me, did Zoe end up having to get the donuts and the coffee on Saturdays? Was that He probably didn't do much else. But was that one of Zoe's bigger responsibilities when you and he were together? Well, actually, by the time I, by by the time when I first got there, when he was, he really didn't have that responsibility because we drafted Bledsoe, and the youngest guy was the guy who always had to get to donuts. So Bledsoe actually had to get to donuts. To be perfectly honest with you. So did that now, change in year two? <laughs> Well, no, it, it, the youngest guy is always the guy who's wow. the the guy who's been around the least. Is the one who's always got that responsibility. So Zolak ate all the donuts. Oh yeah, he ate everything that was everything that was available. Correct. Anything, <laughs> he no. Let me rephrase that. Anything that was free, he would eat. <laughs> yeah. You know what? <laughs> the newsflash here: not much has changed over the years. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though when you say that because I remember when Roosevelt Colvin was here, right? And he was he was sitting outside Coach Belichick's office one day, and I was down there, and I said, "He goes, he's eating a sandwich from Player Dining," and I say, "He goes, I'm so sick of this food." I go, "Well, there's restaurants all over. You could drive down the road and get a get a meal." He goes, "Yeah, but this is free," <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, because you turned down 12 million with Arizona to sign here for six million. You can't afford a sandwich." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to hear people complain when they're making that type of money. You know? Exactly. So, Charlie, um, I, why don't we give fans a sense of what you're up to these days? I know I'm a big fan of listening to you on Sirius is one of the things that you're doing. I think you bring a tremendous insight into today's game. But let fans know what you're up to these days, please. Well, about four years ago, four years ago, I was I kept going back and forth between whether or not I want to coach again or not. And I really have the competitive drive to be involved in the game. So I felt that I, I did I did some TV, but the problem was that was always on, usually on the West Coast was with Fox. And that flight from South Florida to LA, you know, that can kick your butt some. So I started doing satellite radio for Sirius XM and our radio channel 88. And I kind of like it. So it went from a day a week to a couple days a week to now I'm on every morning from 10 to 12. That's great. And for football fans, don't uh, I mean you need to you need to subscribe to Sirius anyway, and you need to listen to NFL Radio on Sirius. And Charlie does a great job of keeping you up to date with everything that's going on. Do you like it, Charlie? Yeah, I do. The see, I I have a little different perspective than most of the guys that are on that show <clears throat> because I don't consider myself an analyst. I consider myself an ex-coach. So from my perspective, you know, when I'm not, not trying to be the analyst of the year and I have no problem admitting, hey, I screwed that one up, where most of these guys, it's all about breaking the story and always being right. And 
as you know, in this game, you're never always right. There's, there's, all you're doing is giving an educated opinion based off you, based off of your resources. And, you know, it's, it's actually kind of fun, you know, and it's kind of fun and it keeps your mind going. So, so based on that, Charlie, you mentioned being ex-coach, not analyst, and admitting to making mistakes. I've always wondered as an offensive coordinator, how often or do you ever regret a play call either immediately or maybe as you break down film of a game and say, oh, why did I call that? Because fans love oh. to do that to offensive coordinators. We're way worse than they are. <laughs> you think the fans are bad. I mean, you should hear your own family saying, what were you thinking? <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, it happens all the time. Now, when it happens in the game, you'll say it or you'll say it or think it at the time like, Man, that was a dumb call. But in reality, you know, you're always thinking when you call one play, you're always getting ready for the next play. So all you're doing is saying, what are the consequences that could come from this play so that you can have the next play ready to go based off of what the result of the play you just called is so that you don't have delay game penalties? I mean, you, you watch this play over all those years. Did you ever see delay game penalties? No. You no. Know, and you didn't because we were always ready with the next call. Now, was it always right? No. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Did you regret some of the plays you called? Yep. You know, you hit the trifecta. Yes, yes, and yes. I mean, so um, there are plenty of times after every game, even after wins, you know, when you're feeling good, because I always felt that, you know, regardless of how things go, you should be happy with a win. But even after wins, you know, that night when you're laying in bed, you're sitting there saying, oh, that was a, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? So it's not just the players doing it. You know, as a coach, you do it as well. So how hard is it then, Charlie, to manage the game? So it's first and 10, you call a run play. You're thinking, okay, what are we going to call when it's second and seven, second and six? But instead it gets hit for a three-yard loss and you got to totally change tune. How hard is it to think ahead to both scenarios? It's, it's really not hard because what you do is when you when you call play, it's in the huddle. So let's let's just go through it. Let's say I've just given Tommy a, a play, and there's 20 seconds left to go on the clock. You only can speak to him until there's 15 seconds to go on the clock, and then that coach to quarterback cuts off. During that 15 seconds while you're watching him go to the line of scrimmage and execute the formation and the play, you've already gone over the alternatives that could, what could, what are the, what are the possible results from this play? And based off of those results, you already know from, let's say two calls, if, they, if it works, I'm gonna do this. If it doesn't work, I'm gonna do that. And you just do that every play, every game, all the time, and then you're never not prepared. Would you, um, Charlie, um, my guess is, and I don't know the year that it was implemented, but you talk about coach quarterback system. You did it without, and you did it with. How big of a, um, how much did that help streamline things, the fact that you were able to get in their ears up until the 15-second mark? Well, it really helped when you had a young quarterback. You know, when you have an experienced quarterback, they just just give them the play. You know, they don't want all they don't want all the coaching points. 
you know, you're still giving the coaching points, but in reality, like in my case, let's say when, when Drew went down and Tommy went in, okay, that was invaluable because you could sit there and talk, you know, while, while he's managing the team, you know, you had that, that window where you could give him a coaching point as well as the play. What are the biggest challenges? I mean, you worked with Drew when he was here in 93 as a rookie. You worked with Tom as a rookie and when he first became a starter in 2001. What are the challenges with dealing with the younger quarterback? Well, fortunately for us, both of those guys, intelligence was through the roof. I mean, and I'm talking Drew as well as Tommy. Their football intelligence was just outstanding, and their regular intelligence was outstanding. So it made it a little easier because intellectually, you had to stay sharp to stay one step ahead of them because they were intellectually sharp. And it really helps when you're coaching a quarterback that really is mentally sharp, that really not only does it challenge you as a coach, but you know it makes things easier as far as the whole operation is concerned. Charlie, I think there's a lot of people uh, in this area um, who today, 2021, give credit to you for the offense and say, well, the Patriots are running. Well, they say it's a Bill Belichick offense and it's a Charlie Weiss offense. When you watch the Patriots today, uh, is it, in essence, the offense that you were running in 1996 and 1994 and 1995? Well, let me just say, that, say this. Not exactly, okay, but... In the last couple of years, you know, when when they went, when they lost, or when they didn't have as many skilled people as they had for that window, for that window they had, in the, you know, when they had uh, Randy Moss and, you know, when they were dealing with that crew, <clears throat> when, you, when you don't have the same, same number of guys as on the outside and they went back to pounding the ball more, I mean, we were more a run play action team, you know, through some through some drop back pass on first and second down, but basically drop back pass was more for third down. I still I would probably it would probably take me a week to get caught up. But I'd say I'd say seventy five percent of it terminology wise and foundationally is the same thing. Would you and then you know, from the spinoff from Josh to Billy, back to Josh again, you know, they've obviously taken a run with it and done a hell of a job. But I, I don't think it would take very long if I walked in there to get caught up to speed. Would you uh, categorize the 96 team, Charlie, with Curtis as a run play action primary team, even with Terry on the outside? Oh, absolutely. Still, that was foundationally. We were we were a run to set up the to set up the deep throw, you know. And you know, it was nice having Terry, especially as a rookie there, um, you know, and, and making a whole bunch of plays. But uh, but it still, foundationally, even when we didn't have the strongest runner himself, we believed in and run the football enough to set up everything else. How good was the 96 team, Charlie? I think it gets uh, lost a little bit with the embarrassment of riches that's happened since Coach Belichick has been here. How good was that 96 team? I thought that we were the second best team in the AFC. Denver. Yeah, I really thought. I think that we were, we were fortunate in the matchup 
that Jacksonville beat them in a in the in the first round of the playoffs because I think a lot of times the NFL it's about matchups, you know, and if you match up really well with a team, usually good things happen, you know. In Denver, you know, Denver was always a team that well, not always a team, but at the time was a team that we struggled with, but when they got knocked out in the first round, you know, it set us up to. You know, be able to play in February, and we ended up playing in February. You know, Charlie, when you got back here in 2000, you know, the offense was in a different place than it was when you left. Um, and I felt like, you know, Ben Coates had been, you moved on from Ben Coates, who struggled probably the last half of 99. Um, in fact, in Arizona, he basically announced that year that he wasn't part of the offense anymore. But I also felt like, Maybe there was an element that Drew had lost faith in the protection, and you guys signed two offensive linemen after the start of the season, Joe Andrews and Sally Asaya, that like started week two. What what had it kind of hit a little bit of bottom right there in two thousand? Well, I mean, any time you come into a job, you realize that in very few, very few circumstances, are you coming into a job because everything was going great. I mean, obviously, that's the reason why you make a coaching change. You make a coaching change because things aren't going great. And, you know, there's a lot of holes to fill. And you fill them when you can fill them. And sometimes you get lucky with the guys you fill them with. I mean, like Joe Andrusi, a journeyman guy. I mean, he's beloved in New England because what was he was? He was that lunch pail guy that showed up every day, that tough guy that, you know, that played better than his athletic ability. So, I mean, when you come into a place, you know that there's you know, there's holes to fill. And you know what? It doesn't do any good taking a shot at, you know, people that were there before you that left those things. You just face the realities, okay, here's the things we got to, here's, here's what we got to get better. And know what your strengths and weaknesses are and play to your strengths and try to hide your weaknesses. So that first season then, you guys – you go through the draft and, and you take Brady in the sixth round, obviously. But I'm wondering what went into the decision to keep four quarterbacks that year because oftentimes coach keeps two. And that year, you know, you obviously had John Freeze and Michael Bishop behind Drew. You draft Brady and keep a fourth guy, which is highly unusual. What did you guys see to make you keep four that year? Well, Freeze was the only guy that was really ready to run a pro offense, but he really was done. You know, like he really didn't have much football left in him physically. Michael Bishop could throw, you know, could make every throw in the world, and you know the thing is we couldn't get him capable of running the whole offense. You know, so he was physically the best guy. So Michael was better physically, okay, and John was better mentally. But Tommy, you know, he had both those qualities. You know, he was just, you know, a skinny kid developing that, you know, had been a had been a winner his whole life, you know, that, you know, had split time his senior year, played half the time because Drew Henson played the other half of the time. And he came in there and we just felt that if we put him on the street, somebody would take him. And at the end of the day, we felt that Tommy would be the like the combination of freeze and bishop a year a year later and that's how it worked out 
Charlie, I want to go back just a little bit um, as you're heading into the 2000 season. You're one of the, I don't know, there wasn't a ton of people, but you saw all the drama that happened here after 96. You saw the drama in order to try to get Coach Belichick uh, and all the machinations that happened there. Was that a hard decision for you um, to, to leave New York and, and um, hit your wagon to Bill in, in, in 2000 with that group that came up here into New England? No. Zero reservation. I was 100% all in going, going with Bill to, to New England. And, and for a number of reasons that I won't go get into, but I was, if there's, if you had said out of a hundred times, how many times would you have done it? I would have answered a hundred. And so in hindsight, how's that decision look? Pretty, pretty darn good, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you make, you make good decisions, you make bad decisions, but you know, I was all in on what, you know, coach Belichick was doing. And, you know, he probably looks at me as a, probably looks sometimes says, I wish, I wish that guy wasn't around. He was a royal pain in the butt. But, you know, besides that fact, I think it turned out pretty well for all of us. Here, here. So when you came in in 2000, you, you know, let's go back to 93. You come in in 93, the Patriots are coming off a 2-14 and 14 season. You guys get into a rebuilding mode. You go to the Jets in 97. They're coming off a 1-15 season. You got to rebuild. Then you come here, and they were only 8-8, eight and eight, but kind of going steadily in the wrong direction, and you got to kind of rebuild. What are the keys that go into rebuilding a football team? Well, I think it all starts with the head coach, you know, and the head, the head coach and what, you know, what they're trying to get done. And, you know, let's give credit to Parcells, the first, you know, and in, in, in the first two circumstances that you talked about, you know, when he came into New England, the first time it was a mess. And I think he did, you know, obviously everyone has their role they play, but, you know, he did a, good, he did a really good job in cleaning up the mess. Then we went down to the Jets, and he cleaned up the mess again. And then we went to New England, and Coach Belichick came up there. And I wouldn't say the mess, it, it was a mess, because you can't say the same about a 500 team than you can say when you walk into a place where they had won one or two games. Okay, but in a very short amount of time, he got the whole building to buy in to suppressing their egos, checking their egos at the door, and it was all about the team. And probably better than anyone that I've ever seen do that. You know, he got everyone to say, you know, no matter who you are, how good you are, how important you are, or how unimportant you are, you know, it's all about the team. I think a guy that probably fits that description as well as anybody that's been in this program uh, Charlie, is guy like Troy Brown. Obviously, you saw him in bits, you know, when you first came here in the early 90s. He made that unbelievable catch um, at the Meadowlands um, to help win that game against the Giants and help you get a bye. What did you see in Troy when you came back, Charlie, that convinced you guys, this guy needs a bigger role. This guy deserves a bigger role, and we need to get the ball in his hands. Well, our offense was always based off of you know the slot receiver being <clears throat> slot receiver being a figurehead and primary guy and and level of importance 
And the slot receiver has got to be somebody. He doesn't have to be the fastest. He doesn't have to be the strongest. He doesn't have to be the guy that lines up outside and runs by people in every play. He just has to be the guy that every time it's third down and you call a pass, he's going to be, he's going to have a window where he's open and you're going to throw it to him and he's going to be able to catch it. And that was Troy Brown. It didn't make a difference. I mean, he wasn't the fastest person, but he had good quickness, good toughness, great hands, and he fit that role very easily. Is that role in this offense critical to its success? I mean, obviously we've seen Wes Welker, Julian Edelman follow Troy. How critical is that position for this offense? Well, I mean, it's it's out of the receiver positions. It's the, the most important position. I mean, because the offense is an inside-out offense, not an outside-in offense. And inside-out, I mean, you think about it. I mean, when you have a, when you have a front-line tight end, you have a slot receiver, where do most of the balls go to? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole time I've been gone now, since 2005, where do the balls go to? Right. Did, did anybody yeah. know what a slot receiver was, Charlie, in, in 2000, where, you know, kind of people scratching their head, and now you've seen that position, you know, the guys don't get the kind of money that the guys on the outside get, but it has developed into a critical role for good teams, hasn't it? Yeah, all I know is I went, we went down to the Jets and they had this guy who came, Wayne Corbett, you know, and he's still open. <laughs> I mean, they still can't cover him. And you look at him and say, how the hell is this guy open on every single third down? But he was open on every third down. You know, so I think that almost every team you look at has that guy. Now, today, some of those people don't use receivers in that position. They might use uh, an athletic running back, or they might use a detached tight end in that exact same role. I mean, like if you look at Kelsey in Kansas City, I mean, Kelsey's best when he's detached, but have he ever has he ever not been open? All the time. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> and and he can, they throw it to him, he's got a big radius, and he catches it. So when you look when you're looking at it, I think it, it really all starts and and New England is no different than than a lot of other teams. But if you have guys inside that can make those tough catches on especially on third down to move the chains, you know, you're gonna score a lot of points. Charlie, is inside out maybe more effective because you can attack linebackers in coverage a little more? Well, inside out's more effective because if your your system is based on, you know, at least rushing attempts. I mean, New England, for example, right now, is very good at running the football with that stable running backs. It didn't have to be one frontline guy, but it seems like every time they put a guy in there, something good happens in the run game. Okay, but if you don't have a complimentary passing game, Okay, or if you don't have a complimentary running game, then in, those inside receivers become less important because now, well, you know, all the action can be can be spread to the to the individual offensive players that hurt you. Like you can sit there and say, okay, we're just going to double the slot on every play, or we're going to double the tight end on every play. So it all works together. I think the fans in this fantasy football era that they so much enjoy 
see the 400 yards passing and all the attempts and they get you know dizzied by all these statistics is it safe to say charlie if you cannot run the football today then there you don't have a you don't have a great chance of being good offensively or a very good team well, i don't know how you say that but look at the buffalo bills how many times they run the ball I mean, they hardly run it at all. Can that last? And one, of the re- and one of the reasons why is because offenses have evolved to the fact that they use these little quick passes that we used all the time when I was there, too. But they use these quick passes, and they consider them like their running game. I mean, but they don't even have rushing attempts. Right. I mean, at the end of the game, you might see they ran the ball 10 times for 20 yards. But they threw it for 450 and they scored 30 points. I mean, so, I mean, it all depends on your philosophy on what you consider a run. I mean, there was one game years ago we played against the Broncos. We won this game out in Denver. And I think that we had like 20 completions that were all called runs. They were all called runs. But, you know, they 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 blitzed on all these plays, and we just picked it up and threw it on these plays and just ate them up. Then maybe the best way to phrase this is, and I think Bill is Bill Belichick is very fond of saying this, if you need to run it 50 times to win, we'll run it 50 times to win. If we have to I throw it 50 times to, to a, win. That's a fair we'll answer. That's a fair answer. You do whatever you got to do to win the game. Was that 2001 team a good combination of that then? Because you brought in Antoine Smith, who could really pound it in there, and you threw a lot of those little quick, what people refer to as horizontal passes that were glorified runs. Well, what what we did is we went to a – it was a very complementary team that year. We knew the strength of the team was our defense. So what we did is we played very conservative on offense – and play to our strength, which was our defense. And that meant rushing attempts was a critical factor for our offense. We didn't always gain a lot of yards, but rushing attempts and just keep on pounding away and pounding away and eating up clock. And at the end of the day, you know, if you win 21-17, I mean, no one remembers what the scores of all the games were. They remember what the record is, right? Yep. They just remember how many won you won and lost. They don't remember how you won and lost all the game. So I think that that's probably the best thing we did that year was play complimentary football. And once again, I give credit to starting with the head coach on that one. So collectively, the region is holding their breath and, and smelling disaster when Drew goes down. In the coach's room, I mean, when you know, all right, Tommy, it's your turn. It's time for you to step up. Um, how did you feel about handing him the reins at that point in time, Charlie? Well, first I felt really bad. For, let's, let's, let's not downplay. This was a serious injury to Drew. Correct. This was a lot worse than people knew. I mean, people, you know, he went to the hospital and everything like that. That was that night in the hospital was, you know, it was, it was touch and go. It wasn't like everything's great. I mean, you know, and now, you know, you're dealing with Tommy Hey, look at we had Tommy and Damon Eward, so I still had two really good guys in the room, and we we just you know we just started we took baby steps, you know, and then we grew from there. And the more the more he showed he could handle, the more we did. And it's amazing that you can think about it. We started off 
Dinkin and Duncan right, uh, right off the bat. And at the end of the year, he's running a two-minute drive to win a Super Bowl. So, I mean, obviously, he, the offense evolved very quickly with him at the helm. Okay, so uh, I think the way that Drew and Tom recall it is Tom came over to the sideline and the instructions were take care of the ball. And as he's going back out onto the field, this is against the Rams in New Orleans, as he's going back on the field, Drew said, just effing rip it. Are both true? Uh, both, well, both are true, just so you know. Right. But the conversation was basically, and this was a short conversation. They were listening, first of all. They weren't saying anything. It just Bill and I were talking, and we decided very quickly that we'd go ahead and make a run at it. And if we had a negative play, then we'd shut it down and kneel on a ball and run the clock out, you know, if we had a negative play. So and we I, we just felt that they had just they had all the momentum and we we wanted to give it a shot. So I said to him, I gave him the first play. And I'll say, OK, don't forget your check down. Make sure you don't take a sack. Now, if you recall on the first play of that drive, you know, a defensive, an interior defensive lineman had a hand on him. Yep. You know, he slid got strip sacked, yeah. You know, he, they, they had a hand on him. So he dumped the ball off to JR, and because we got a positive play, we went ahead and went. But Drew did say exactly that. He said, just, you know, in a very New Jersey like Drew, <laughs> for a guy who's from out in the middle of, out in the middle of Montana or Washington. Um, in a very Jersey Lake moment, he did uh, encourage him just let it go. <laughs> You've accomplished so much in your career, Charlie. But with the benefit of time, and you look back on that 2001 season, do you ever scratch your head and say, "Man, I can't believe we won it that year! What an accomplishment that team and that season was." Well, probably one of my favorite one of my favorite two moments in my Patriot career happened, started before the game, but happened after the game. So if you recall before that year, you had to go to the Super Bowl, you had to get to the venue way early because of the security. So before the game, I walk over to the, to the wall where my wife and son were, and I'm talking to them and a security guard standing right there, a very high wall. And I'm talking to them, and I said, okay, now after when we win this game, you meet me right here, and I'm going to lift you over the wall to bring you down on the field so you don't have to go down to the end zone and go down those steps over there. So the security guard looked at me and said, coach, come on, win the game. And I looked at him and said, you remember I said that. So when I'm taking them over the wall, I don't want to hear any crap from you. <laughs> okay. So all right, so the game's over. We kicked a field goal. Everyone goes running on the field. I never went on the field at that time. I went right to the wall. And I go to the wall, and my wife and son met me there. And 
my wife was starting to hand my son over the wall and the security guard started to say something. I looked at him and said, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and, and, and he, he turned his head away and let him go over the wall, both of them. So, I mean, so, I mean, the, those are the little things that you remember just Tremendous. say, how awesome is that, you know? And then, you know, my other awesome memory goes all the way to the, my very end when, you know, Bill grabbed me and Romeo. Like that was a moment that I'll always cherish because, you know, it, we put, spent a lot of time together and we were all going separate directions. So that was kind of cool. I remember seeing that. I was, I think I was about like 15 yards from that point in time. And I remember looking at that and just, you know, as an outsider, you could sense the emotion of it. You could sense that here is three people who really care a lot about each other who've accomplished something that not many people are able to accomplish in their profession. And it just felt special. It felt and looked special. Well, that was, like I said, there were, if I had to pick two moments, I gave you both of them. There were two, two unique stories, you know, like, uh, you know, the 2001, basically no one figured we had a chance. And then the last one, even though, you know, we were, we were expected to win, you know, was it, closer again than you'd like it to be but uh that's beside the point still they look at super bowl 39 and who won super bowl 39 always oh, the patriots okay that's that, that's all anyone that's all anyone really remembers that's right so so speaking of rack i mean he's still been doing it all this time but when when he came in in 01 was that like a huge addition to the staff you guys obviously worked with him with the giants with the patriots initially with the jets was it great to have rack back Oh, he's one of my favorites of all time. You know, I mean, give us know, a late night rack Charlie story. <laughs> oh well, I'm telling you, they used to have them all the time because usually, you know, especially in training camp, we would let the assistant coaches head home around you know eleven eleven thirty, and then we'd have scripts to write for the next day based off of what Bill wanted to do the next day. So. Rack used to have to wait for me to be done for him to fill in the defenses. So there'd be a lot of times at one, sometime between one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning when when we were done, we would, we would sit there for about 15 minutes, you know, uh, just shooting a breeze about what, what's going on in life. Not so much about football at that time because we had finally wrapped up because when everyone came in, you know, four hours later, you had to have everything done. Interesting. All right, Charlie, here's one that I have for you. Maybe one of my favorite plays, I think Patriot fans' favorite plays that has stood the test of time. What's the evolution of the direct snap to Kevin Falk at the time? That was in Super Bowl 38. That unbelievably, in the same stadium, just at the different end zone, they did the same thing to James White in Super Bowl 51. How, what was the evolution of that play? Oh, I saw it. Don't worry. When I see it, I call. I call the. It's. I use the verbiage and everything. <laughs> when I see, when they, they, there's been several times where they run run plays that are exotics that you know, you know that we that we ran earlier in my time there, but we were trying to try. Actually, we had studied in the off season. We were working on two point plays and trying to go through you know what 
what can we do that are, that are exotics that would give us the best chance to carry over from week to week so that when you ever need to pull it out of the bag, it's ready to go. So, you know, this was one of the ones because of Kevin's hands, because you couldn't count that the snap was going to be perfect every time. But Kevin had such great hands. And, you know, between him catching the ball and the quarterback faking like it went over his head, you know, um, it actually was it actually was an easy play for us to carry over from week to week and use it when we when whenever we needed to use it. And the success rate on it, I mean, is incredibly high, isn't it? Doesn't it mean because you don't yeah, overuse it, right? That. Which is I don't, be- I don't ever remember it not working. You well, probably right. do, you probably should say why didn't you run it more? You know? but, <laughs> well, it was really funny in Super Bowl Fifty One. In Super Bowl 51, I was sitting in the stands, but I was down in that end zone where they ran it. And when James White motions to the backfield, I just happened to catch that he was a little closer to Brady than he normally was. And I, I said, this is going to be the direct snap right here. And boom, they ran it. And it was like, you could just tell because I just remembered Kevin running it so frequently that it was, they kind of, I thought it, they kind of tipped it off, but... I had a good view of it too. You must have been tickled to see that in that game, Charlie. When oh, you see that, I mean, right? Uh, yeah, I I really enjoy when something like that when something like that happens. You know, when you see something and you know, like there's different words that different different people use, like the Philly, the infamous Philly special. You know that everyone hates so much in New England. I mean, we we put that play in years ago. The, the Patriots ran it. Play. I mean the exact same play. I mean, home against now, my- now all of a sudden, now now they take everyone takes credit for the Philly special. The Patriots ran it in the game, and Brady dropped it. Right. <laughs> the, the best. Isn't that amazing? Been- they, they 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 did run it. it. Just I guess it's so, not so much when you run it, it's where you run it too. You know. And it's only yeah. special if it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how how often? Well, how often, Charlie, would you practice the direct snap play um, during the year? Well, maybe once a week. Okay. You know, once a week on Friday. So, Charlie, and if, it's, if it's screwed up, you might practice it again, but once a week. So how often when, when – I know when you were here, I don't know if you were always up in the booth as the offensive coordinator, but there were certainly times you were up in the booth. How often when you're sitting up there and you call a play, and I, I have one in mind in particular that someone told me about who was in the booth with you that day, but how often do you call a play, watch the defense line up, and know you got a chance for a home run? And the one I'm thinking oh. of is the Saints game in 01, the screen pass to Antoine Smith for a 42-yard touchdown play that someone said, told me, as soon as they lined up, Charlie said, this is a touchdown. That's happened before, you know, that that's happened before um, where you're sitting there and you're looking at it and say, oh, my God, (laughs) they got no chance. (laughs) Snap it, snap it. (laughs) How how about the other way when they line up and you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Well, fortunately for us in our offense, you know, most of our plays have an out in them, you know. So, you know, a lot of them are check with me's and the outs already built in. And, you know, then there's other plays where you can audible, depending on who the quarterback is, 
you know, and, you know, audibles very seldom take place in the NFL where everyone talks about quarterbacks changing plays. They're not changing the play to something original most of the time. They're changing it to another option that was designed if that play wasn't there. So there are times that you go to the line of scrimmage and say, well, I don't know about this one, you know, and and, uh, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. But when they work, you feel very fortunate because the look you got wasn't exactly what you were expecting. You talked about the... um the celebration that you, Bill, and Romeo had at the end of uh, Super Bowl 39. Um, As we found out this past February, uh, we're reminded it was the last team to go back-to-back Super Bowl champions. You know how difficult that is, and certainly the Chiefs can now understand that. But how remarkable was it, the consistency, Charlie, between those two teams and those two years of just lunch pail, go, and win the game. It's an unbelievable achievement. What do you remember about, you know, that second year, 04, and trying to do it again? Well, I think we learned a lot in 02, you know, because that 02 season after we won Super Bowl 36, you know, and then we ended up going 9-7 and and not making the playoffs. I think we all learned that each one of us could have done a better job just a little bit better job, and we would have had a chance of winning it again uh, that time. And I think that our normally I give credit to Bill, Bill and the coaching staff, but in this case, I like to give credit to the players. We had such a great veteran group in that locker room that kept everyone keyed in on what was important. You know, we very seldom had problems in, you know, very seldom because the veteran players really ran the locker room. And let me let me give you this. In any championship caliber team, you need to have a championship locker room. And we had one. How important is it when those guys, those veteran leaders, your best players are very much willing to take hard coaching. Hard coaching? What's that? <laughs> but I asked that, Charlie, because when you're trying to build sort of a, a cycle where the younger guys will eventually become those older guys, and they've watched Tom Brady get grilled in front of the team in a meeting room or Willie McGinnis get grilled in front of a team, how important is that for the, to keep that development and that cycle going? Well, there's good and bad in that, you know, but let's go over the good because that's the question. The good in that is like when I would yell at a quarterback, you know, during the week, because I'd never yell at him during the game. You know, I, I would, I only would yell when I talked to the whole group. I would never yell at a player during a game, you know, other than, uh, other than if they get a personal foul for being stupid. You know, but, you know, my whole deal, my whole deal was the tough coaching really took place during the week, not on game days. Most of the time with very few exceptions. There were a few exceptions. But uh, I think that when the rest of the offensive players see that the quarterback is not exonerated or free from harsh criticism, it's then it's okay when they get criticized. 
like the offensive linemen, they they get you know they get it the worst. But they lo- no one loves it more when the quarterback getting yelled at than the offensive linemen. They're an absolute. They're in, in pandemonium in love when the quarterback gets yelled at <laughs> because you're, they're used to being the guys. You know now. What they haven't figured is the reason why they're used to it is because there's five of them out there, so it's easy to pick out one of them, you know. Whereas a quarterback, there's only one. But I think that when your team knows that you're going to treat everyone the same, okay, then they can have a level of respect for the fact that you know everyone's even. No one, no one's free. So speaking of the quarterback, uh, the guy who was here back then who just won his seventh Super Bowl, I think he's about 55 years old right now and still winning Super Bowls. Are you at all surprised with his ability to sustain his level of performance at 43 years old? Well, I'm surprised that anyone could do that at 43 years old. But I'm not surprised that if somebody could do it, it's him. I mean, so... I mean, who would figure for anyone to sit there and say that, that they expected a 43-year-old guy to still be playing like this, you know, they'd be lying. But I can tell you I've not seen his arm drop off. So I've seen no evidence of him not being able to make all the throws. And we all know this about Tommy. When he thinks he's done, when he thinks he's fallen off the cliff, He's not gonna. He's gonna. He's gonna walk away from the game, because what he doesn't want to do is be one of those guys that hang around too long, you know, that hung around too long. He's playing because he still thinks he can win championships. And you want to know what you betting against him? <laughs> nope. Nope, Charlie. Because you got him in his infancy. Was there? Well, maybe this is cliche or trite, but. Was there an aha moment with you? Was there something where you saw it and you said, yeah, obviously nobody, sixth-round pick, you're not going to say he's going to play until he's 43, so I'm not talking about that. But was there a moment when you were coaching him where you said, you know what, I think this guy's got a chance to be pretty good? Do you remember anything like that? Actually, it was the first year he was playing. And you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned a game against New Orleans. I believe the game was against San Diego oh, when no. they were San Diego. Yep, home, home yeah. and overtime. All right, so but we were down two scores in the fourth quarter. Correct. After the fumble okay, punt, well, you know. So in that in that game, we had practiced a whole. They had San Diego had an exotic blitz that nothing on our regular offense could handle. I mean, our regular uh, our regular plays would not handle that exotic blitz. We used to we had to have an answer to the, this one blitz. So I put in, you know, an answer to that play. You know, this is what, if they run this, we're going to go to an audible, which I said we hardly ever did. So we went to an, we had, we practiced this audible. We probably practiced it five times during the week. Okay. So now we go through the game. They don't run the blitz. The whole 60 minutes, they don't run at one time. You know, we come back in a game, we tie it up, we get to overtime. Okay, our de- they get the ball first, our defense stops them, we get the ball. Now we have the ball, we're going out there, our first possession in overtime after San Diego already having a drive. First play, we go out, come to the line of scrimmage, here it comes. Plain as day, I could see it. 
And I'm saying to myself, there's not a chance in hell he's going to see this blitz coming. Sees it, backs up, calls the audible, throws the ball 55 yards down the right sideline to Patton. They tackle Patton because he's running by him for a touchdown. So they tackle him. So he didn't catch the ball, but they uh, pass interference. Three plays later, Benetieri kicks it through the uprights. Good guys win. And I remember going home that night. I'm sitting there and talking to my wife. And I said, honey, I go, we got something special here. And that was the day. That was the day. And I've mentioned this same story several times before. But that that audible in that situation, first play that we had the ball in overtime, throwing a, making a making that call, okay, was the day I said, you know, we we might have something special here. Last one here for me, Charlie, and unbelievable insight and stories. But you know, we talked earlier as we started this about you know staying connected with Sirius and everything like that. What kind of a thrill do you get? Um, and do you live it vicariously with your son involved in coaching and watching his career? And, you know, you talked about, uh, oh, I'd like to have that one back or things like that. Is, it, is that the nervous dad watching these games? Go, Why did you call that, you know? How has it been watching his career develop? Well, I'm the only – he's the only game that I watch as a fan – Normally when I watch football games, I don't watch as a fan. I watch because I'm rooting for people. But when I'm watching his games, because, you know, obviously, and you know, it's my, my kid, it's totally different. So when I watch his games, I root, you know, I, I get, you know, when things go good, things go bad. I'm like, every, I'm like everybody else. I just don't say anything because you know, I, th- I don't think it's out of line for me to be saying anything. And even as far as advice or questions and things like that, I will never ask him anything or tell him anything unless he asks me. Because I'm not going to be one of those guys, one of those dads who had all the answers. You know, now if he asked me, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Like currently they're going through camp and they have four quarterbacks, you know, so I watched the video of the quarterbacks every day from practice and tell him what I think of the quarterbacks. Now, at the end of the day, it's going to be the head coach and him. But it's kind of cool to watch a kid that, you know, grew up on a side, grew up on a sideline, you know, that's all he's ever known. I mean, the kid's first recollection of football is being in old Foxborough Stadium after games in that little parking lot where they walled off for the players, you know, on top of Bledsoe's shoulders. That's what he remembers. Because Drew's parking spot was right next to mine. So after a game when we're having a tailgate a little tailgater after the game, you know, you know, Drew treated him like he was his like his own little kid. It was like three years old at the time. Well now he's twenty seven years old. He's already been at Alabama for two years with the Atlanta Falcons. Okay, two years as, a, as an offensive coordinator with Lane Kiffin down in Florida Atlantic. Now he's at USF. I mean, you know, and as I'm watching this, I know that, that where this is heading, and you know, it's 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 heading to you know bigger bigger pasture, bigger greener pastures. But with that comes the everyone knowing oh, 
just view him as Charlie Weiss, not Charlie Weiss's son, please. I mean, <laughs> because that's how I try to look at it myself. Tell you what, I hear a I hear a dad bursting with pride in telling those stories. You know, from the Bledsoe shoulders to the places you've been, that's great. That's what it's all about, right? That's what it's all about. Well, well, I'll tell you one cool one. You know, like we're at training camp in Foxborough, and you know, Tommy's Tommy was like his big brother. You know, he's at our house a lot for dinner and stuff like that. So we're at training camp, and Charlie's walking around, and there's a long line of people waiting to get Tommy's signature. So Charlie walks by and Tommy goes to him, you know, Charlie had a hat on. He goes, Hey Charlie, how's it going? He goes, Hey Tommy. He goes, hey, you want me to sign that hat? He goes, why would I want you to sign my hat? <laughs> <laughs> hey, this might be uh, worth something someday, kid. Right. Why would I want you to sign my hat? You're just Tommy. Has he has he seen what his rookie card has gone for over the last week or so? Yeah, I'm trying to get some. I'm trying to get some from him. Yeah, I bet. Just a cool one point three. Right. Exactly. Just send me just about half dozen of your rookie cards, please. Right. Right. So I can retire. Right. Charlie. Tremendous conversation. Uh, fans, please go to SiriusXM and listen to uh, NFL Radio and Charlie Weiss for his insights. Um, great going down memory lane with you. All the best going forward, and thanks for your time today, Charlie. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. And Mo, one last thing here. I have to tell you, I really love my time in New England. You know, uh, you know, between the Kraft family and Belichick and everyone there, but the fans always treated me so well. I mean, they really did. I mean, even when things didn't go well, they treated me great, and I really, I really appreciate it. <clears throat> Probably when I, when I, when I retired, not retired, when I took the Notre Dame job, I know when I interviewed for the Notre Dame job, the first thing I said to them um, in, in Providence at one o'clock in the morning in December on a game plan night on Tuesday is that I have to finish this out regardless of how this turns out, because the people from New England would disown me if I didn't. So my happiest moment as related to that is the fact that I was able to leave to take the Notre Dame job after having won the championship. And, you know, that those people deserved that from me. The organization deserved it from me. And I'm glad I'm glad it ended up that way. Well, we are too, Charlie, so thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today and catching up. All right, take care. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Google Play, and everywhere else you listen. Like the show? Please rate and review us. Listener comments and ratings help keep us high in the podcast rankings so new listeners can find us. Be sure to check Patriots.com for more news and more podcasts.